I watched The Regeneration from 1915. It's directed by Raoul Walsh, who I know, but only from some gangster pictures he made in the late 30s, early 40s. Since I really like the films I've seen from Walsh, I was really excited to see The Regeneration and see some of his earlier work. I think there are 17 of his films on my list, so I've got a bunch of Raoul Walsh coming up. But this is the first time. And it's really good. Despite being made in 1915, I think it really stands up to his later work. And it's as good as any modern film. It's dated in the sense of how old it is, that it's silent, that it's not restored or anything. But that's the nature of art. All art is the product of its time. But there are timeless qualities to any art piece that allow it to stand out. And so the regeneration is timeless in the ways that matter for a film. Sure, if you watched it now, you wouldn't say, gosh, I'm surprised this is an old movie. I thought this was made. No, you would know it was not made in 2023. But it's really good. And having extolled its timelessness, I'm going to start praising it for one of the ways it's most dated. Because the regeneration was filmed almost entirely on location in New York's Bowery in 1915. And it's really only through films like this that we get a glimpse, like a real true glimpse of what that neighborhood looked like back then, because it's been demolished probably several times over since then, basically erased from history, except in some surviving films. And you can read about it in books, but nothing beats seeing those actual tenements, seeing the streets, the cars, the people on the film, to get a completely honest, accurate look of what it looked like back then. You see these spider webs of clotheslines strung between the buildings, and it's a really powerful reminder of what our cities were like once. The film is part gangster story, part morality play. It traces the life of Owen, who's played as an adult by Rockcliffe Fellows, who I think looks a lot like Jason Siegel, a modern actor, although others have said he looks like Marlon Brando, so I don't know. He reminds me of Jason Siegel. We meet him first as a child, obviously not played by Rockcliffe Fellows, and there's actually three actors that play him throughout the film. When he's a kid, we see he's an orphan. He's taken in by these abusive foster parents who pretty much just use him like a servant. They're beating him. They're beating each other. They're drunks. They're fighting. We also get to see something that I guess was normal in 1915. They send the kid out with a bucket to a nearby saloon and he hands the bucket under the swinging doors gives him a coin and then the bartender slips him back a bucket full of beer and then he brings it back to his father but of course he takes a sip because he's a kid that's having a bad life that's kind of what we're being shown is he's got a rough upbringing and then later in the film we see this den of gangsters who are also passing around this pail probably the same pail of beer and sipping from it so I guess that meant that back in the 19 teens it was not unusual to walk into a bar, hand the bartender a metal pail, and say, fill it with beer. So, who knows? It's one of the fun things about these movies, really, is things that weren't necessarily at all germane to the plot are actually very interesting to me as a modern viewer because I see this great insight. Just like I said with the Bowery, seeing the Bowery, there's all these things that have long since fallen out of fashion that are perplexing, but you realize that's what people did back then. 
Anyway, we rejoin Owen in his teens. He's now living in the streets. He's running with the gang. But we see he's not all bad because there's this one point where some bullies are pushing around this crippled teen. This kid has like a hunchback or something. And Owen intervenes and beats up the bullies. So he's still a good guy at heart, but he's running with a bad crowd. We get another time jump. We catch up with him now at 25. And this is where the movie really starts. We've established his background. Now, what's going to happen to him? He's the boss of the toughest gang in the Bowery. He's living a gangster's life. But we jump across town. We suddenly are in the wealthy part of town. We see this district attorney, played by Carl Harbaugh. And he's at a dinner party. He's with his rich friends. And the conversation turns to gangsters because he's promised to clean up the gangsters. And one of the guests, Marie, who's played by Anna Q. Nilsson, she exclaims that she'd love to see a gangster in the flesh. And he says, well, I know just the place. So he takes them down to the saloon in the Bowery. But I guess the poors don't like it when the rich come to gawk at them because you see this table. He's got his top hat and tuxedo. They're all dressed up and the whole other place is rowdy, poor people. And they're just, it's like they're at the zoo or something. And so a fight breaks out. They're, they're not happy that these rich folks are there. And the district attorney is kind of getting ganged up on. It's him and these three women. So the women have gone to the side and he's getting pummeled. Marie, she makes eye contact with Owen, who at the, this point is just kind of watching the fight. And this really great acting on the part of Nilsson, she implores him with her eyes to help. And so Owen jumps in, separates them, and he walks them out, gets them to the car, makes sure they leave safely. But as they leave, we can see there's some romantic tension between Owen and Marie. Marie, as this is happening, I guess I should add this, when they leave the saloon, there's a guy out in the street with a crowd. He's like an activist sort of talking to people about how bad things are and how people need to reform. And he's basically talking about how rough life is in the Bowery. And I think the combination of seeing it firsthand, seeing that Owen despite being one of those people had a gentle spirit and was willing to help, hearing the speech, it gives her, for the first time in her life, a sense of purpose. And so she comes back to the Bowery and starts volunteering at a settlement house. So she's now a regular fixture there. She's sending money to needy housewives. She's educating people. She's teaching kids to read and teaching math. Owen notices that she's there, but he's skeptical. He's keeping his distance at first, but... He's finally won over when he's recruited to help rescue a baby from an abusive father. And so he goes in, he keeps the father at bay while he gets the child out. And you see him kind of bonding a little with the child. And he has some flashbacks. He remembers his own unhappy childhood. It's at that point that Owen buys into Marie's cause, realizes it's worthwhile. And to the shock of his gang, he leaves his role as head gangster and he starts learning to read and write and do math at the settlement. Now we see that Skinny got the eye patch. He's the bad guy. He's a much more brutal gangster. He's not like Owen. Skinny is now the replacement gang leader. The gang is behaving worse. Skinny stabs a policeman. He runs to the settlement and begs Owen to hide him. And Owen refuses at first, but he eventually acquiesces when Skinny reminds him of a time that Skinny had lied to the police for Owen. So he hides him. The subterfuge works when the police come, but Marie and Ames, the district attorney, come later. They learn that Skinny is hiding there. And 
Marie goes to her room and she's sad. Ames kind of, ta- I think Ames also likes Marie. Ames taunts Owen saying, well, you've lost her. She's never going to love you now. She comes out and she's actually redoubled in her efforts. She really wants to reform Owen. She knows he's not bad. She can tell that he's sorry. So Ames is a little shocked by this. Owen feels bad. He storms out. And it's a little unclear, at least from the audience perspective. Is he going to get revenge on Skinny? Is he going to go back to the game? Who knows what's going to happen? Instead, he goes to a church, to a priest, and he wants to, I guess, it's one thing if Marie says you're a good guy, but he talks to the priest and the priest says the same thing. The priest is like, you're, you're doing good. You can't stray from this righteous path just because you made one mistake. And so he's even more convinced now to be a good guy. However, because it's a movie, there's got to be some tension. Marie, she thinks that Owen might be going after Skinny or maybe he's gone back to the gang. So she goes to the gang's clubhouse to find him. Skinny tricks her. He's like, oh yeah, he's up in this bedroom. She goes up there. He locks her in and starts trying to assault her. She barricades herself in a closet. He's trying to get in. Meanwhile, Marie, she's had throughout the whole film, her assistant is that hunchbacked kid from years ago that Owen helped. He's also been, he's at the clubhouse too. They beat him up, but he sneaks out, runs to the church, gets Owen, and lets him know what's going on. So Owen races back. He gets there in time. He chases Skinny away, but Skinny tries to shoot him, misses, and it hits Marie. She's badly wounded. And so they get Marie back to her room. She's on her deathbed. Owen is about to get revenge, but she implores Owen don't do it. And there's this really striking, clever moment in the film where instead of it just a title card saying, don't get revenge, this like a stone tablet sort of materializes in the sky. And it's not there, but it's like it's it's kind of like a movie thing where she sort of points at the vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and Owen acknowledges it. And I just thought that was a really great way that it's something you can only do in a movie, but it really works. It might look silly in a modern film because people can talk, but in the context of the scene, in an era where films were silent, it's really clever and really meaningful. It's a powerful, one of the most powerful scenes in the film. Skinny does get his comeuppance, but it's at the hands of that crippled youth who's played by an unnamed actor that I wish I knew more about. He's a standout in this film as this hunchback kid. And actually, to Walsh's credit, he's never singled out. They never make a big deal. They never really mention it. They don't make him a freak. They don't linger on him. He's not there for any lurid reasons. He's just, he's got a handicap, but he's doing his thing. I I wish they had listed the actor. I'd give him some credit. But uh, anyway, he sees Skinny trying to avoid the police by climbing from one building to another on one of those clotheslines that I mentioned earlier. And he shoots at him. It's not clear if he hits him or if just the shot surprises him, but Skinny falls to his death. That's how the film ends. It's not a happy ending, but it's a redemptive ending. And I think it's actually very clever. Besides keeping Owen on the right path, his choice not to avenge Marie's death adds this extra level of emotional weight to her murder. It wasn't like he was on the fence and only decided to remain moral because she died. In that case, it would have felt like more of a plot contrivance where she died so he would have an excuse to do something. But it's clear he was already completely determined to do right before she was killed. And Marie's death is just a tragedy, not a necessity of the plot. 
All told, I really enjoyed this film. Intellectually, it's on par with what Griffith was doing at the time. It's not as visually innovative. Maybe this is the budget Griffith had, or just maybe the scope of the stories he was telling. But Walsh is definitely on the right track here. And on the topic of Griffith, here's an interesting side note. This is the first film I've watched for this project that was directed by Raoul Walsh, but it's not the first time I've seen him, because he had a small role in The Birth of a Nation, where he played John Wilkes Booth. He was also an assistant director on that film and part of the editing team. And it's clear he must have learned a lot from Griffith, because he's really making great movies here. It's still early in his career. This isn't his first movie, but he knows what he's doing. That also leads me into something else I probably should bring up. It's that I've now reached a point in cinematic history where there's a lot more structure to the filmmaking process. In many ways, 1915 seems to be the beginning of the modern era of film, and it isn't as if the birth of a nation instantly overnight revolutionized film. Things, I'm sure, moved at a much slower pace back then. So yeah, it's not like everything that came after it was different, but it's clear that movie making was moving away from the independent, often haphazard methods of its early days and becoming far more organized and supervised. The studio system wasn't really fully in place yet, but you're starting to see its roots. And films, at least the better films, are now being made by these coherent teams of people as opposed to a guy with a camera who was probably recruiting friends and family. And so from here on out, I think it's going to be more important to pay attention to more than just the director and the actors in the film, the writers, the cinematographers, the assistant directors, the producers, other people are starting to play key roles in films by 1915. And it's really becoming interesting to track their progress. So I expect there'll be a lot more interweaving threads throughout the coming films. Next, I'm watching Pool Sharks from 1915, directed by Edwin Middleton. <laughs> 